Have you ever wanted to just get away? Whether it's due to the daily friction of life or a particular season of difficulty, I suspect that everyone experiences times of just wanting to escape. Now, escapism has a negative reputation, and justly so in many cases. However, the misuse of escape doesn't invalidate the need for escape in the right circumstances. Escape, you see, is a response to danger. Not to discomfort, not to boredom, not to sadness, not to responsibility, but danger. There are some situations where escape isn't just a good idea. It's an imperative, because the alternative is unthinkable. What does this have to do with the Bible? More than you might think. I invite you to spend the next few minutes with me in looking at what the Bible has to say about the dangers of life, about the things we need to escape from, as well as what we should escape to. You see, we need both the from and the to, if we're to successfully find the way of escape. Hello. I have to say, one of the most depressing verses in the Bible is, for me, uh, 2 Timothy 4.10, where Paul says, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Now, when I consider Paul's dedication to the work of evangelism, I just can't believe that this desertion didn't hurt. I can't help wondering, what Demas could have loved so much that he would walk away from the gospel. And that prodded me to take a look at what word had been translated into English as this world, because in the Bible, world can mean a few different things. So I, I checked the Greek and I found the word aeon, from which we get the English word eon or age, a span of time, usually a long time. I, I wouldn't have been surprised if it had been the Greek word sarx, or the flesh, that had drawn Demas away, but this present age? But the more I thought about it, the more sense it made, because this age, or the here and now, as we so ungrammatically describe it, has drawn away many from the kingdom of heaven, sometimes so quietly as to leave deserters completely unaware that they have walked away. Uh, the Bible draws a couple of contrasts between what, God, what Jesus calls the sons of this age and hmm, something else. We'll get to that later. Uh, the first uh, instance is at the end of the parable of the dishonest manager. I won't go through the parable, but basically it's a man caught cheating his employer and he makes some shrewd financial arrangements to buy favor with a few of the people who owe his employer some pretty deep debts. And Jesus ends this parable by saying the sons of this world, this aeon, this age, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. Now, of course, our usual focus is on the encouragement implied that people of the kingdom should be wiser in dealing with the world. But did you notice the contrast? This world, that word aeon again, is not in this case contrasted with some other world. 
but with light. Now we know the opposite of light is not a period of time. So this ought to give us an implied description of this age, this aeon. It's dark. It doesn't have light. The second instance pulls out the distinction between the worlds much more clearly. Luke 20 describes how a group of uh, a priestly sect called the Sadducees are trying to trip Jesus with a question about marriage and the resurrection, which was not a serious question on their part because Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection of any sort. But Jesus takes the question seriously, and he speaks to their disbelief instead of to the sort of useless scholarly debate. But in his answer, he says this, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are worthy, considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now here, almost in passing, Jesus draws a line between the people of this age, this world, and the people who will be accepted into another world, another age that lies somewhere beyond the resurrection of the dead. Now, what exactly is this age, and how do we recognize it? We have a scattering of references throughout the New Testament that offer us different facets of this current age. For example, this age has its own brand of wisdom, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 20. And he says that we can recognize the wisdom of this age by the high value it places on power, bloodline, education. Uh, We can recognize it also by the fact that it does not endure. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6 says that the wisdom and the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. And that, as far as I can see, is the primary qualification that shows something belongs to this present age. And that is its transience. It will all pass away and come to nothing in the end. This is how 2 Peter 3 uh, describes the destiny of such things. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Some translations say burned up instead of exposed, but it works both ways because through fire everything will be exposed for what it truly is. Good, bad, valuable, worthless. That, by the way, is from 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, of course, there's another marker another sign that proves you're dealing with this age, and that is its absolute incompatibility with the gospel. 
in both Matthew and Mark's Gospels, in the parable of the farmer, the seeds, and the soil, one of the conditions in which the Gospel will not put down permanent roots is when it gets choked out by, and I quote, the cares of this age. <laughs> in, in my experience, that part of the parable sometimes gets glossed over too much. But it really needs to be a blaring alarm to anyone who claims to trust in Jesus Christ. Any part of your life, whatever it is that crowds out your responsibilities as a disciple of Jesus and a child of the Heavenly Father, it belongs to this age. So we have two main characteristics by which we can identify the things of this age. First, they're impermanent. And second, they threaten to displace the gospel as a primary priority. But you might ask, why can't we have this age and the next? Isn't it too extreme, not to say against scripture, to talk about escaping from the very world we live in? Some will argue that way because we were sent into the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and so forth. And a life of desert asceticism really isn't relevant to the people we're trying to reach. So I'll wrap up this second and this first half by asking, when did I say anything about escaping from the Great Commission? We'll be back in a few seconds. Anyone who knows me well knows that as a writer, my first love is storytelling. I want to tell you a little about the first novel I ever published. It's called The Keeper House Unending. It was supposed to be an allegory. As an allegory, it failed. It ended up as a fantasy adventure story about a boy named Colin, just coming of age in a time of war between the Kavari Empire and the Keeper Kingdom. Although he lives in a neutral territory between these two nations, Colin's sympathies are with the Keepers. And he gets caught up in not only the imminent invasion of Keeper lands by their enemies, but in a long-standing internal conflict between their last surviving prince, Owen, and his brother, the general. As if these weren't big enough problems for Colin to handle, he finds himself beginning to see sights and hear sounds that no one else can. Will his alliance to the Keepers cost him everything, even his own life? Or will his mysterious ailment turn out to be the key to saving a kingdom? The Keeper House Unending is available in paperback from Amazon and in ebook format on the Kindle and Apple Books platforms. I invite you to take a look. Right, so we are back to thinking about this present age and why it is not only right, but essential that disciples of Jesus should escape from its stranglehold on life. Uh, it might seem at first like I'm taking a tangent completely off topic here. But this past week, uh, in browsing online, I saw a blog post headline that says something to this effect. Christians will always identify with David even when they're really Goliath. Of course, the gist of the post was that Christians have held and still hold most of the power in American culture and, of course, use it to bully the powerless. 
but they go on as if they were the underdog. <laughs> I'll admit up front, I didn't bother reading the whole post, because mainly I was depressed and irritable at the time, didn't really feel like facing that kind of hostility. But the title alone gave me plenty to think about. One thing I considered was the curious fact that even for someone who has never opened a Bible or set foot in a Sunday school class, nearly everybody connected with Western culture in any way knows the words David and Goliath. But for those who really don't know the story, they think David and Goliath is a story about an underdog winning against a major power by, I don't know, hard work or maybe dumb luck, something along those lines. But here's the thing. The story of David and Goliath has nothing at all to do with an underdog winning against all odds. David walked out onto that battlefield without the arms and armor that would have represented the height of contemporary military craftsmanship of his, yeah, because he was convinced that what looked like strength wasn't strength at all, and what looked like wisdom was folly. Now, everyone around him on both sides of the battle thought that definitely the big, strong, skilled veteran of many battles had to be the sure bet. But David went out under the insurance that the only sure bet was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he stepped forward not as an underdog, but as a favorite to win. And events proved him right. Now, maybe you've caught the direction I'm headed here. Maybe not. I'll explain. Sometimes we talk about the Great Commission as if it's a corporate mission statement to be carried out through the reasoning and the means that every successful corporation uses to increase its value. But it isn't. I mean, we talk about living culturally relevant lives as if relevance is found in your house, your clothes, your vehicle, your entertainment, your education, what you eat, what you drink. Now, cultural relevance is found in shared experience, and virtually always, it's in the difficult experiences. As far as the Great Commission is concerned, you know, go out and make disciples of all nations, relevance only happens when we meet the brokenness of this world with lives that have faced pain and have stepped out into the unknown with the assurance that what looks like strength usually isn't, and what looks like wisdom will turn out in the end to be nothing but well-dressed folly. This age and all its stuff, it's gonna rot. Or if it lasts until the final day, it burns up. It reminds me of one of my dad's favorite poems, that one by a missionary named C.T. Studd. Maybe you've heard the refrain. It goes like this. Only one life, twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So this idea that we're underdogs needs to go out the window. And with it, the idea that we need the things that are hyped by this present age in order to win. In fact, the only way to carry out Jesus' commands is to let go 
of this present age. It's either let go of that or let go of the coming age, the better one. Now, the word better reminds me that my daily Bible reading program has me in Hebrews right now. And I've started to notice just how often the word better crops up in that book, right? It talks about a better message than angels, uh, the better covenant than the one given to Moses. But the part that struck me the most while I was thinking about this episode was from Hebrews 10, starting in verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, did you catch the word joyfully in there? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Our first and deepest instinct as humans is to cling to what we have and keep reaching for more. What could possibly make a person not only go against that instinct, but to do so joyfully? Nothing but the firm assurance that the things of this age are nothing are really trash compared to that better and abiding possession promised to those who hold fast to the word of truth. And the the behavior described by the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 10 is repeated in chapter 11 in the midst of a fuller explanation of this firm assurance called faith. It's a matter of perspective, really. Now, Hebrews 11 is often called the faith chapter or the heroes of faith chapter, for good reason, admittedly. But in among, amongst the examples of biblical personalities who lived faithful lives is a little side note that always arrests me whenever I try to read through the chapter. Now, starting in verse 13, it says, These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, the things of this age belong by rights to the people of this age. They don't really belong to a people who acknowledge themselves as belonging to another age, another world, a better country. And it's these latter whom God is not ashamed to be called theirs, nor to call them his because they really belong to his country. And this brings me back to Demas and his desertion from 2 Timothy 4.10. Uh, The opportunity to return to this age and all its temporary stuff is ever-present. Demas chose to return. He chose this age above the next, above the better. And I do wonder, since we aren't told in Scripture whether he ever regretted turning back. We don't know if he ever thought better of his choice, 
and returned to the kingdom of God eventually. But one thing we can know for a certainty, because the Bible repeats it in multiple passages, those who turn away from Jesus to embrace this age and its fleeting securities and pleasures will regret it one day, but too late to repent. And I I don't want anyone to reach that day without at least one warning. We choose what we hold on to, whether it's this age or the next. And holding on to both is not an option, because each choice demands everything you've got. Those who choose to follow Jesus must hold loosely to everything of this age. If you hold too tightly to a thing slated for destruction, you'll end up destroyed with it. But if you hold to that which lasts, here's another promise for you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now that's two sure facts for the believer of Jesus. God provides for everyone who belongs to him, and everyone who belongs to him will suffer rejection by this present age. So travel light, because you're just traveling through.